before we get the show started, a number of you have asked about supporting what I do here at Monumental. I now have a mechanism on my website for that to occur. Just go to mattministry.com, mattministry.com, and click on the support page. You can make a one-time or recurring support gift. Your financial support provides me the help with resources and, more importantly, time to make more of what you hopefully enjoy. So go to mattministry.com and click support if you'd like to help. Your support is deeply appreciated. And with that, let's get it started. Thirty-eight A.D., just outside of Rome, three o'clock in the morning. A middle-aged man jolts upward from his bed, having been aroused from sleep by a nightmare. By faint torchlight, he eases himself out of bed, careful not to further disturb his wife. Walks to a nearby mirror and a basin of water, scoops some in both hands and splashes his face, wiping away the terrifying sweat that had built up on his brow. Looking into a faded mirror, still panting from the night terror he experienced, he notices blood on his cheeks where there should have been only water. Looking down, he sees his hands are covered in red. Plunging them into the basin, he furiously scrubs and scours his hands in an effort to remove the life-giving substance from them. He, He works himself into a ferocious lather, scraping, scratching, whatever it takes. His heartbeat now races to unhealthy proportions as panic and desperation ensue. And with a gasp... The retired Roman official sits up in bed, covered in perspiration. Quickly looking upon his hands, he realizes they are clean. But there would be no return to sleep this night. Now in full consciousness, he eases himself from his bed and bedchamber and carefully plodding to a large table in the other side of the home. He sits down on a chair, lets out a heavy exhale, and is thankful for the reprieve. Grabbing a clay jug, he pours himself a cup of water in an effort to refresh himself. But while lifting the glass, he sees blood dripping from his hands and shouts and drops the cup so that it breaks into a hundred pieces and water spills on the floor. I guess some stains just won't come out. It is, without a doubt, the most famous death in human history. And among all the emblems of the world, none is admired, glorified, and worshipped as the cross. Some say it was the biggest miscarriage of justice of all time. It's, it's important to understand the brutality of the day 
and, and, and what they did to this guy who did absolutely nothing. Jesus was innocent, not just of committing a, a, a crime punishable by death, but he was completely innocent. How is it that the death of a nondescript teacher from 2,000 years ago still affects the world today? You cannot write a more tragic story. It's impossible. He carried no political power. He held no official position within his own religion. Yet he managed to gain the attention of oppressed citizens, the outcast, the downtrodden, the forgotten, then religious officials, soldiers, and eventually the Roman Empire itself. Oh, the people love him. He's known as a healer and an exorcist. He's talking about the kingdom of God. He's implying that there will be regime change. He's approachable on a human level. His death could only be described as a conspiracy of the highest order. He said that the Holy Spirit would descend and convince the world that he was innocent. Accusations are plentiful. But who is ultimately responsible? Much research of the historical Jesus has focused on this question of who was responsible for Jesus' death. By whose hand did the founder of the world's largest religion suffer and die? The Matcast proudly presents a limited podcast series with an investigation of scripture and experts, all in an effort to answer one question. Who killed Jesus. Thank you for joining us for episode two of Who Killed Jesus? My name is Matt Anderson. But for his inclusion in the Gospels, Pontius Pilate would at most be a footnote in history. He was undoubtedly a Roman soldier, and some say a Roman knight, who had fought in Europe for the empire. Now through an inside connection in the government, he would secure an appointment by the Emperor Caesar Tiberius to be the prefect or procurator of the region of Judea in 26 AD. Now, what must be understood from historical accounts and what we know about the Roman Empire is that Roman governors were not afraid to use the sword when necessary. Judea was a pretty important place strategically. It was on the western edge of a very unsettled area, what we would now consider the Middle East. And so the men who were sent there from Rome tended to be soldiers first and diplomats second. Um, if you look at the other governors of Judea, if you look particularly at those who preceded Pilate, they were a pretty violent bunch. Pilate would make his home in Caesarea, a resort-type town on the Mediterranean, built by King Herod the Great in an effort to curry favor with the Roman Empire. But during the main feasts of the Jewish people, Pilate would commute to Jerusalem to make sure the Jews, always troublesome to the Romans, would not get out of hand. Judea was never an easy assignment. After all, some of their annual religious festivals celebrated a future king that clearly was not Roman. The Jews had a very long tradition of enslavement to foreign powers. The exile in Egypt, liberated by Moses, 
captivity in Babylon, subjugation to the Persians, domination by the Greek rulers of the Seleucid Empire. This sequence of foreign domination stimulated the Jews to believe in themselves as a special nation, to believe in the imminent arrival of a liberator, a deliverer, a messiah, who would overthrow the foreigners and give the Jews back the land of milk and honey, which they had been promised when in Egypt. The role of Roman governor involved many functions. He would be directly responsible to the emperor and would oversee the financial matters of the territory, including tax collection, military operations, criminal prosecutions, and infrastructure. What many don't realize is that the procurator would also serve a spiritual role. There's a crucial nexus between religion and power in the Roman mindset. The reason the Romans keep winning is that they are such a religious, such a pious people. And the fact that they keep winning proves that God rewards their piety. So it was natural for the Romans to be both militarily very brutal and religiously very pious. And therefore it was taken for granted that uh, the way to ensure continued success is to have a strong military presence on the ground and to keep worshipping uh, the gods as they should be worshipped. It would be Pilate's spiritual zeal that would bring about his first dust-up with the Jewish people. Pilate was considered high priest of the Roman state church in Judea. Not only worshiping the Roman gods, but also worship of the emperor. In this case, Tiberius. In Caesarea, Pilate would build a temple of worship in Tiberius's honor. Early in his reign, Pilate would try to impose the worship of the emperor on the Jews, but the Jews would not have it. The Roman soldiers would enter Jerusalem with their standards, featuring the silhouette of the head of Tiberius, lifting him as an object of worship. Previous governors had avoided this, knowing how the Jews would respond. Pilate is determined to set a different tone. The historian Josephus writes that, in protest, many Jews went to Caesarea and surrounded Pilate's palace for six days, letting the prefect know they would not serve other gods, but their one true God. Finally, Pilate summoned them to a stadium, presumably to hear their complaints, but suddenly he would surround the people with soldiers with drawn swords, implying that the demonstrators would be mowed down and killed. His hope is that the Jews would surrender their position because they valued their lives. He must have been surprised when, en masse, the Jews knelt down, exposing their necks as if to say they would rather be beheaded than worship any other god but Yahweh. In spite of their reputation, Rome hated two things, wanton violence and revolts. Pilate had to choose between peace and possibly a bloodbath that led to an all-out revolt. 
Surprised by their willingness to die for their faith, Pilate backed down and ordered the soldiers to resheath their swords. Instead, he would begin to think more politically, enhancing his relationships with the Jewish religious officials of Judea and use diplomacy to maintain peace with the religious officials, wherein the Jews could still practice their religion but still abide by Roman law. It would not be the last time Pilate's leadership was tested. Josephus writes of another incident between ruler and ruled. He had used temple funds for the building of an aqueduct, all with the blessing of the religious elites. This angered the people, and they surrounded Pilate's palace once again in protest. This time Pilate would change his tactics and have the soldiers dress in Jewish robes, carry wooden clubs beneath them, and filter among the people themselves. Again, giving the appearance that he would hear their complaints, he signaled his cloaked soldiers, and they sprang into action, beating the protesters with their now brandished wooden clubs. Many were hurt, a few died, and the rest of them scattered. The protest was over, and Pilate had shown his dominance. I think what you see here in this incident, compared to the earlier one with the standards, is that Pilate has learned something of a lesson. He realizes that there's no point in sending in Roman troops with their swords blazing, ready to cut down everybody who opposes him. And so what he's doing here is more a kind of a police operation. It's not clear when Pontius Pilate would have first heard of Jesus. But it's most likely that he had received reports well before their personal confrontation later. I suspect the Romans were pretty puzzled about Jesus. They would have had quite good records. We know that Roman governors had spy networks and they kept information on potential troublemakers. They were pretty efficient at that sort of thing. And so the Romans are thinking to themselves when they get these reports about Jesus, who, who is he? What's, what's he up to? What's his game? And it doesn't fit any of the normal models. They will have seen him as a potential threat because anyone who's gathering crowds is a threat. Anyone who is talking about God's kingdom is a threat. Anyone who knows anything about first century Judaism knows the kingdom of God talk means we want God to be king, not Herod, not Caesar, etc. Nevertheless, he wasn't doing the sort of things that you might have expected a Kingdom of God movement to be doing. So I suspect they saw him as a potential enemy, but weren't actually quite sure how that was going to play out. Galilee was just to the north of Judea and valued with little regard by the Romans. It would probably be a first century version of flyover country. Technically, it was overseen by the Herods, a dynasty of evil men who tried to identify themselves with the Jewish people, but the Jews never accepted them, even when Herod the Great rebuilt the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus of Nazareth was a rogue preacher in Galilee, but not initially seen as a threat. When it came to the Jewish people, if there was one word that aroused their attention, it was the dreaded M word, Messiah. Because in that culture, Messiah meant king. 
which meant rebellion and revolution. However, there were false messiahs popping up all the time in Judea and in the surrounding areas. Each one would have to be dealt with if their following gained any momentum, but few of them amounted to anything. But Jesus is not preaching the same way as the previous messiahs. Really, it's what Jesus doesn't preach that stands him apart. He would not preach against Rome or even mention Caesar, Herod, or Pilate specifically. Most likely, Pilate would have received reports of Jesus during the Jewish festivals, when Jesus would visit Jerusalem with the other pilgrims, but nothing came of it. That was all about to change. Because during this Passover, Jesus was no longer going to abide in the plains of Galilee or the shadows of Jerusalem. Two incidents would bring Jesus' accusers to Pilate's door. The Romans cared nothing about the spiritual ramifications of his actions. It was the political implications that raised their suspicions. Apparently, upon his entry into the city of Jerusalem, Jesus had entered in the opposite way of a conqueror of Rome, namely on a donkey, not a war steed or stallion, but just a small donkey. But it was significant in that the Jewish scriptures predicted the Messiah would do the same. The people were shouting, Hosanna, which meant save now. They were wanting something political to happen through this man right now. On top of that, the people waved palm branches. This was a throwback to a revolt in Jewish history. The palm branch was their symbol, and it stood for a free and independent Judea. Jesus was now officially on Pilate's radar. The next day, he had caused a disruption at the temple, overturning tables and freeing animals that vendors had brought to be purchased for sacrifice. The Romans hated disruption, and Jesus was now at the eye of this Passover hurricane. The old saying goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And in Jesus, the religious leaders thought they had a common enemy with Pilate. Expressing their disdain for Jesus' actions, they both agree that action needed to be taken. Wanting to prevent a riot during the Passover, arrangements are made to arrest Jesus at night. Apparently, they have an inside man willing to hand him over for payment. In John chapter 18, Pilate bolstered the temple guards who were arresting Jesus with what some believe to be a, quote, cohort of Roman soldiers, which could number as many as 500. Though in secret, Pilate is not messing around. His hope was that the religious leaders could handle the squabble internally and the arousing incidents would end. But he would not be able to extricate himself so cleanly. No doubt the next morning began like most days for Pilate. The morning of the day of the trial is one of the most fascinating moments in Pilate's life. 
Here, if you like, you have the moment when fate fingers him. But he would have got up as if it was an ordinary working day, which means that after he'd washed and dressed, he would have made his private devotions to the gods. He would have offered incense, he would have made his prayers, the way any Roman starts an ordinary working day. But how extraordinary it is for us to think that on this ordinary day for Pilate, he was going to have such a calamitous meeting, one that changed the course of history, if you like. John chapter 18, verse 28. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. So Pilate went outside to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? They answered him, if this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, it is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. This was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Pilate brings in Jesus to have a private audience and question him. Now, Pilate was not concerned with the same things as his fellow accusers. He was looking for a pretend king to be deposed. He refused to allow any so-called Messiah or king to rally a following and begin a holy war against the Romans. As far as the Romans were concerned, it had to be made absolutely clear that they and they alone were boss here. That if there were to be any leaders of the people of Judea, the Romans were going to appoint them. That's why they hired and fired high priests at will. And that therefore they were never going to allow some popular leader to arise from out the ranks of the Jewish population. The Romans were used in other provinces to native revolts, to people taking on kingly roles or leadership roles in Gaul, for instance, or in Britain. And their reaction was always swift and merciless. Put this down, we can't allow this. John 18, 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. When Pilate asks Jesus this famous line, what is truth? He is being perfectly ironic because here is Pilate sitting 
as judge, jury, executioner, managing this whole bizarre criminal trial, truth should be the one thing he cares about. Casual observers of history would immediately dismiss the biblical accounts of Pilate's interaction with Jesus. After all, why would he care about just some other Jewish man, let alone another rogue, pretend messiah? Just kill him and be done with it, they would say. Now, there seem to be three factors that cause this case to be different. First and foremost, Pilate is speaking and listening to the Son of God. To speak to Jesus and hear from him means that one does not walk away the same, positively or negatively. He made an impact upon everyone he encountered. Some were convinced and believed. Some were hardened and calcified, determined to end him, while others were intrigued but reluctant. This must not be dismissed. I think Pilate probably realized that Jesus was in a category apart, that he was different. He'd never met anybody like him. He may well have thought that Jesus was a deluded fanatic, that he was just mad. There were other mad people around who did silly things. Maybe Jesus was another one. And yet the sources imply, and of course they've been written up by Christians, that Pilate was also haunted by the clarity and the serenity and in a measure the silence of Jesus. Matthew 27, 18. For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Pilate had rightfully discerned that Jesus was not brought to him because of guilt, but because of envy. The ones who had arranged his arrest were envious of what he was doing and the results he was getting. And no doubt after his initial questioning of Jesus, he could see why so many were beginning to follow him. Pilate was being used for a favor. And thirdly, his wife sent word to him that she had had a dream about Jesus the night before, and it haunted her. Romans take dreams seriously. Dreams and omens were really important in the way that Romans understood the gods trying to communicate with them. On top of that, like any political marriage, Pilate had to have valued his wife's opinion. He now truly found himself in a conundrum. Pressure is mounting on both sides. Luke 23, 4. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Ever the politician, Pilate sees an opportunity. He knows Jesus could be a potential political and religious threat, but he also sees Jesus as an opportunity, a pawn, to be used against the Jews. When he meets the priests again, the priests say Jesus has been a problem for years, starting in Galilee. 
At the mention of Galilee, Pilate immediately sends him to King Herod Antipas. Some see it as Pilate merely passing the buck, but it may have been much deeper than that. Herod and Pilate had never gotten along, so this will be Pilate's chance to extend an olive branch to Herod and involve him in the adjudication of a spiritual matter. Herod is overjoyed at being included in Rome's judicial system. Herod would reach a similar conclusion as Pilate, but Luke offers an interesting political nugget to understand the end result of the meeting. Luke 23:12 And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. Herod would give Pilate allegiance. But that still doesn't settle the issue with Jesus. Matthew 27:15 Now at the feast the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered Pilate said to them, "Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ?" For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, "Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream." Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, "Which of the two do you want me to release for you?" And they said, "Barabbas." Pilate said to them, "Then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ?" They all said, "Let him be crucified." And he said, "Why? What evil has he done?" but they shouted all the more let him be crucified now there is much debate among historians as to whether there was actually a practice of freeing a prisoner at passover perhaps it was a tradition pilot began himself but the gospels are rather consistent on this point It is also a matter of debate as to why Barabbas was chosen to be paired with Jesus. Barabbas from the biblical account was a notorious criminal. At the least a thief, by the way, which the other two being crucified that day were guilty of, and at the worst a murderer and insurrectionist. It seems hard to understand why the Romans would even tempt fate at the idea of releasing such a dangerous man back to the Jewish people. Perhaps Pilate, wanting Jesus freed but not wanting to do it himself for fear of a riot, would let the people decide and it backfired on him. His vacillation is on full display in John 19. after he orders Jesus to be flogged. John 19:4 Pilate went out again and said to them, "See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him." So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, "Behold the man." 
When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king! They cried out, Away with him! Away with him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. The crowd played the ultimate trump card and used Roman policy against Pilate. If Pilate thought he would free Jesus, he would no longer be Caesar's friend. Pilate had been in trouble with Tiberius before, and if this report were to reach him, now Pontius Pilate could pay with his life for his insolence. So despite the interaction with Jesus, despite knowing that envy was at the heart of this trial, and despite his wife's dream of warning, he feels he has no choice. So he hands Jesus over to be crucified. The political opportunist had been beaten at his own game. Matthew 27, 24. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. In all, Pilate would reign in Judea for 10 years, until 36 AD. It is unclear what happened to Pilate after this time. While speculation persists, with some saying he retired quietly to being murdered by a future emperor or committing suicide at the request of an emperor, we just do not know. What we do know is that it was upon his order that Jesus was beaten and crucified. There is blood on his hands. But in assessing liability for history's most famous death, 
Perhaps a spotlight should be turned to those within his own religion and culture who either saw him as a threat to be extinguished or an opportunity to receive ill-gotten gain. Surely they must hold accountability as well. You've been listening to Who Killed Jesus, a MattCast limited series and a production of Monumental Ministries. If you'd like more information or to hear from the archives, go to mattministry.com. Thanks for listening.